This week on Ultra 64, Doom goes medieval and John Romero makes us his bitch, because we're playing Hexen and Die Katana. Welcome everyone to Ultra 64. We are the internet's comprehensive Nintendo 64 podcast. Each and every week we are playing a different randomly selected game from the Nintendo 64. And we are playing it and we are getting extremely frustrated trying to navigate gray, endless corridors. And my name is Steve Guntley. I am futuristic cyber samurai on the desperate hunt for higher textures. Woody Siskowski. <laughs> Man, I wish they were more uh, lucky in that uh, search there. Today we are talking about two games that butted off the id software. Uh, I, I don't know what to really say. I guess, I mean, yeah, it, it butted off of id software in a way. Like, firstly, we're playing Hexen Beyond Heretic, which is a straight-up Doom clone. Uh, and then we were playing Dai Katana, or rather John Romero's Dai Katana, which was yeah, the... Yeah, I, I couldn't... I was looking for the... I was looking for the file for this game, and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, yeah. why is it not in here? And I'm like, oh, because it's officially called John Romero's Dai Katana. Oh, my God. I have I have so much to say about Dai Katana. This is one of the most fascinating train wrecks in video game history, and we will get to it in a moment. But uh, it's, it's interesting to look at these two different games. Like, you know, one of them, I think... Would is is derivative, but it's not terrible. It was kind of awesome. I it's don't know, not man. Bad. I, I kinda, no, I, I really liked it. Well, let's get into it because we actually have all, so much ground to cover in this episode. There's a, a lot to talk about with all of this stuff. And so it, it, that covering ground, if I'm doing it, it's probably going to involve going back and forth over the same ground multiple times, looking for a tiny switch. Oh so Jesus it may take Christ! Us a while. Oh, the backtracking in these games is insane. But let's start with Hexen Beyond Heretic. This was released May 31st, 1997. Developed by Raven Software and published by ID Software. And this was also released on Mac, Windows, PlayStation and the Sega Saturn. So Raven uh, Software. Yeah, for what it's worth, real quick, um, yeah. the PC, the PC original version of this came out in like 1995. It did, yeah. It came out a good decent amount of time before this. And uh, this very much looks like a game from 1995 as well. So we'll, we'll get into that. But Raven Software was founded in 1988 in Wisconsin, uh, and they are still going strong today. Uh, their first game was called Black Crypt in 1992, which was like a top-down action RPG and it kind of typified the sort of dark heavy metal inspired fantasy games that the studio would kind of popularize um, they partnered with id for their heretic and hexen series which we are talking about now and they also handled the company's 2009 reboot of wolfenstein which gets completely forgotten about there was like a new wolfenstein game in between like the rebooted Wolfenstein. There's the new Wolfenstein oh, series from Bethesda okay. that's like very popular now, but there was another attempt at rebooting Wolfenstein somewhere in there that was like fine, but it didn't take off at all. And that's the one that they handled. Uh, a couple of other noteworthy titles include the Soldier of Fortune series, which was very weirdly popular in the 90s for a magazine based off a magazine where you could uh, hire professional killers. 
<laughs> it was very yeah. I remember that game was very infamous for like having very in depth death animations. Yeah, yeah. So that was someone's ear, and they would bleed out the side of their head, and that was the exciting feature that the game really promoted. Yeah, these were like <laughs> discount titles, if I recall. They were like the twenty dollars PlayStation kind of, titles. It was the kind of games that made it difficult to like defend video games as like an art form against video game violence. Kind of. Like, what games were promoting? Or what was that one game where like? you fire a bullet and then everything goes super slow and you get like a slow-mo version of like their testicle exploding like from the inside. I don't know. I forget what game. It's, one it, of the it, s- it's not Manhunt? No, no. Manhunt had similarly gross stuff. This was like a sniper game. I don't remember which one, but it was so gross. Uh, other Raven Software games include the uh, Star Wars Jedi Academy series, which are quite good, the X-Men Legends series, and the Marvel Ultimate Alliance series. So they've been pretty popular. They also yeah. did the surprisingly fun movie adaptation, X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is the only thing from that movie you should ever salvage. Uh, pretty fun, very, very violent kind of God of War clone with Wolverine. Um, in recent years, the company was acquired by Activision, and uh, now they're keeping afloat by consulting on Call of Duty games. So they're kind of like the backup like developer for all Call of Duty. Call of Duty, you're far, far above just afloat. You're probably doing pretty well. Probably doing pretty great. But, like, their name isn't even usually on Call of Duty games. Usually they're just kind of in to help out with the development as, like, a backup team. But, you know, they're still – they're paying their bills with that. So good for them. Good for Raven Software. Uh, So Hexen is actually part of a trilogy. Uh, This is called the Serpent Rider Trilogy. Uh, This is the direct sequel to a 1994 shooter called Heretic, which I had actually never heard of until today. Uh, Heretic's big claim to fame at the time is that it was one of the first third-party games published by id, uh, and it used the Doom 2 engine, but it made a couple of notable improvements. The big ones are the ability to look up and down, which was sounds like nothing, but this is, I think, the first first-person shooter to let you do that. And uh, it also let you uh, uh, interact with some of the environments, and you could manage your inventory, another minor thing that is the first for a first-person shooter. Uh, the game got a pretty lukewarm reception at the time. I think most people just kind of called it another Doom clone. You know, uh, it was a very, very polished one, but it was just basically Doom again. Uh, but Hexen Beyond Heretic debuted on PC in October of 1995, and that one was an immediate critical and commercial success, where Heretic only made, made kind of a few minor upgrades to the Doom engine. Hexen was a much more original experience. It added eight-player network play, it had weather effects, it had rotating walls and environments. You could choose from multiple classes. There were FMV cutscenes, which of course we don't get on the N64. Nor do we get the eight-player network play. No, we do not. (laughs) We do get four-player local multiplayer, which is uh, more than any other home version can state. And we do apparently get the best graphics and frame rate of any of the home port. But I'll tell you, once you, uh, if you try to play that multiplayer even with two players, it it is rough looking. I didn't even try. One of the most brutal graphical experiences, try playing the four-player mode zoomed. It just looks like hordes of mushy particles coming at you. Well, be prepared, because down the line, I am going to make you play that when when we're not isolated to our own homes, I am going to make you play these multiplayer modes. I couldn't even open up the uh, Daikatana one, because you need at least two players, like, uh, so I couldn't even do it, but... Hex and I didn't even try, uh, but it, it is, it, from what I understand, it's kind of just like a standard four-person deathmatch mode, right? I mean, yeah, that, that, no, actually, no, it's actually a co-op mode. Oh, it's a co-op um, mode. It's very, it's very strange. It, the multiplayer of this game is actually 
co-op. So you just choose the level that you want to play on. You can start a new game. You each pick a character. Uh, yeah, up to four people. And then you just run around the same way you would in a single player and beat the level. However, you can set it as a deathmatch mode where you can turn friendly fire on. But then you can choose whether or not to have the enemies in the level as well. So it's just basically the single player game deciding if you want to play co-op or competitively. That's really strange. Yeah, that's really it's very strange. odd. I, just, but I thought it was just going to be a straight up like four player shooter, but yeah, that's really odd. So, all right, the plot of this game. Uh, this takes place in the series takes place in a fictional land called Parthoris. Uh, the world has been overrun by three brothers who are powerful warlocks who call themselves the Serpent Riders. Uh, one race, which is the the Sidha Elves, S I D H E. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Uh, they refused to bend to the Serpent Riders, and uh, so they were branded as heretics and uh, beset upon by all the mind-controlled armies of the land. Uh, the elves are almost completely wiped out, except for one warrior, a guy named Corvus, who goes on a quest of revenge against one of the Serpent Riders, who's the, the youngest brother. Uh, his name is Dispero. Um, so Corvus defeats Dispero at the end of Heretic, and Hexen takes place kind of where the story leaves off, but in a different realm with different characters. So Hexen is, uh, yeah, the, the thrust of the story is basically the same. You take play the role of one of three different heroes. So it's either Baratus the fighter, Daedalon the mage, or Pariah the cleric. And uh, you're just trying to take down the next of the three brothers, a guy named Korax, who is supposed to be slightly stronger than Disparil. Um, yeah, lots of... Uh, uh, I think the the vibe I got off of this was early '90s image comics. Lots of lots of Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld kind of approaches to, and then like heavy metal magazine, you know. So it's kind of it's all sword and sorcery, but it's gritty sword and sorcery, and it's violent and it's gross. So that's kind of the vibe you can expect going Have into. Have you Hexen. ever um, listened to the band um, Rhapsody of Fire? I think they might just go by Rhapsody now, but. Okay, it's like this this Swedish power metal band that just does the sort of dumbest, most broad uh, fantasy tropes. Okay. And they're like, it's the kind of heavy metal where you're like, I don't know if they're taking this seriously or if it's actually just a parody of this kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's pretty fun in of itself. And I, I actually really liked the aesthetic of this game just because it was so just like throwaway, like broad fantasy of like i don't know there's some like swords and dark elves and you have to go fight this magical wizard like we don't give a shit like you're just a fighter or a cleric like yeah. it's so clearly so little like attempt to sort of differentiate itself from just like super obvious fantasy tropes well like the fantasy genre is kind of defined by like excessive amounts of detail and world building and that's not really what you get here you get a bad guy, some good guys, a world, some weapons, and that's it. Like, it's a it feels very like, straightforward approach. It feels approach. like my first D&D campaign. Like, the writer of this game was just like, uh, I don't know, you're a fighter. Let me look in the rule book. Uh, it says you have high strength and high speed, so uh, let's just put that in the game. And you have this big helmet, and <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, should I press this switch? Uh, no, no, press that switch later. You have to come back yeah. after you press two other switches. Yeah, well, that would be that would be a very odd D and D campaign. Yeah, you you I mean, press this switch and it moves, and maybe something happened. Who knows? I mean, this is a great example of the blank but blank subgenre. The the in this case, it's doom but fantasy or doom but medieval. I mean, I don't even mean that as a as a knock because there are lots of great games. Like you know, the new Spider Man is just Arkham City if Spider Man. 
you know, like that, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, uh, to be truth be told, I think I prefer this game to doom 64. Like, oh, I think I this, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's quite the same level of polish as like quake or quake two, but it's as derivative as this game is like, there's something pretty charming about it. Uh, and I like that they're trying to mix it up a little bit and they're trying to at least put a little bit of a twist on the formula that we're used to. So I would say probably the main, I mean, yeah, I think the reason that this game sort of stands out as a unique thing, the main reason I like it more than Doom 64 is because you can actually see what the hell is going on. That's a big thing, like yeah. It's, it's a much, much brighter game. But um, your starting weapon, at least for the cleric and fighter, are actually melee weapons. Yeah. So a lot of this game is spent running around bashing dudes. So did you just... did you sample mm-hmm. all three of the characters when you played? I did. Okay. Yeah. So the um, mage like sucks ass, right? Like there's no reason ever to play as the mage. Uh, I don't know. Well, did the they... mage starts with a with a projectile weapon. I mean, I guess so... that's the one thing, but it's such a weak projectile weapon. It's just shooting these little blue energy bolts, and it takes forever to take anyone down. And then the mage also has the lowest defense, too. So, like, if you get swarmed on, you do get more powerful spells as you go on. Like, I got the frost shards, um, which has a cool animation of just, like, your hands being on screen as you, like, turn things into ice. And that was a little more this, powerful, but it still this felt... This game... Yeah. I think the really cool thing that this game does that actually kind of makes it feel like very true to sort of the fantasy or RPG genre, even though it doesn't have any RPG elements, really, is that all the characters get different weapons. Like, aside from having different stats, if you're the cleric or the fighter, you start out either uh, with a mace or punching people or the wizard, like, this little magical spell. But then, like, the second weapon you get with the cleric is like this little snake amulet that shoots out green beams the fighter gets this like axe with this blue sort of highlight on it and yeah the wizard gets this ice spell and then um the final weapon with the cleric is like this there's i think there's only four i think there's only four weapons per character which is a little lame but it is still really cool that they get different weapons yeah because it does make them feel dramatically different no, it definitely does. Like, it is a different experience going through it. The game itself is not going to change. But even little things, like the green potions that you pick up everywhere, do different things for every character. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. Which sucks also, because if you're the cleric, uh, if you throw your little green potion, it, it unleashes like a poison gas cloud that can hurt you. It hurts your enemies. It slows them down, and it makes them easier to take down, but you are also taking damage. You kind of have to use it as a trap. Like, you drop it right as you're running or something. Yeah, yeah, and it takes a long time for the poison gas to dissipate. And then, like, if you're the fighter, the green potion is, like, more of a a slow-fuse grenade, and then if you're the mage, it's, like, a quick bomb. So it's going to act a little differently every with, like, depending on which character you're using. And that's cool. I really like that. Um, yeah, and like you said, the the characters all have their own little suite of weapons. Um, there's there's also some cool little power ups you can find. I didn't actually find any of these in my gameplay. I, I've tried. I tried to sample a little bit with all of them, but uh, there's a, a power up called the Dark Servant, which is a toy monster that comes to life to defend you for thirty seconds. <laughs> and then there's one called the Porkalator, which turns every enemy on screen into a pig. Oh, I did that's not really find fun. that. That's really fun. That is fun, yeah. That's very ratchet and clanky kind of thing. I mean, some of the, like I said, the, the design here is very derivative. Most of the bad guys look like they're just very lightly reskinned Doom demons. 
Yeah, like they're but the I same. Mean, the Doom yeah. demons kind of already fit in a fantasy world. Sure. Yeah. No, they totally right. do. But like, there isn't too much. And like, there's a lizard monster in here that I swear to God is taken straight from a Spawn comic. You know, like when I uh, it. when the clown turns into they that big thing with the jaw. Delightful yeah. homage. Delightful homage. So, there it is. Sorry, yeah, I, I interrupted the the clown, the spawn clown. Yeah, did you see? Uh, I don't know the the clown uh, that turns into that like tall, skinny thing with the horns. I don't know if you're how familiar I, I, I'm with not spawn. very familiar with the works of Todd McFarlane. Well, either way, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a thing, and it, it, the the lizard monsters in this look exactly like that. Um, but I mean, they, they lean into the goofiness. Some of the names of the enemies are like the Molotor or the Death Wyvern or the Chaos Serpent. Like they're, they're having fun with some of this stuff. Um, so the levels here are much, uh, larger and more intricate than you would see in a Doom game. Uh, it's more about solving like one kind of big puzzle i mean a puzzle might be too generous because you're just like looking for and pressing buttons and to this, open this doors. is the part of the game where it kind of loses me like i most of the, what uh, the first as i started playing this game I'm like wow this is just first person golden axe yeah which is sweet yeah that's um great. but then you sort of get into these aspects that are always the part that i have trouble with with doom in general of like find this switch to open a door so you'll and the the way the things you interact with are kind of fastened to the wall like it's not clear that it's a different switch it's just like looks like it's part of the architecture right um and then you'll activate it and you'll hear like a noise of something happening but it's so unclear like it gives you no indication of like did a door open Mm -hmm. did an elevator start did a portal appear you just have to sort of backtrack until you see something that looks different and i hate that oh and this was true in all the doom games too this was always a thing but it was simpler in Doom. Like, you know, there's one switch you're going to press and that's going to activate one thing. This is, uh, it's a multi-step process. So, like, for example, the first level that you're in, you have to go into this cavern and then you have to find a hidden passage behind stained glass. Then you go down there and that's going to take you to a, a green key. Then you have to take that key, go unlock a gate somewhere else, find your way around. It, it's a very complicated yeah, and process. Then you, climb, you climb up a church and ring the bell up there, which activates a portal. But there's no explanation mm. for why ringing the bell activated the portal. Yeah. There was nothing telling you that that's what you needed to do. And that's where it got frustrating, is I like, I liked the way this game played a lot. Um, and it was fun to just sort of run around and bash things and use my different weapons. But it got into so much just frustrating backtracking and wondering where I was. That was a big issue. And I didn't get past the second level, which was like this uh, uh, kind of big courtyard with seven doors along the sides. And you're supposed to go into like a portal in each one of these. But like certain switches inside certain portals will activate doors back in the main hub world. And it's not always clear like what switch is activating what or like which order you should be tackling these. It feels like you should be tackling them in a specific order. And this is not a game with, like, any lore. You know, there are no pieces of text or anything written throughout the game. There are no in-game clues. You just have to kind of fumble around into the in the dark until you figure it out. Uh, and then, you know, on a second playthrough, it goes much, much faster. But, you know, but I agree that, like, the core gameplay at the center here is fun. It, it plays exactly like Doom did in 1995. Um, the... Looking I up love, and down I love bit. The way, oh, yeah. I love the way the weapons look because they have such like a green screen look of like they clearly just had the environment and they just put the sort of flat animation of your weapon right in the front. 
but like the the mace that the cleric uses is so satisfying when it whacks things. This is a game I actually really missed because this game came out pre Rumble Pack. So I really, I'm like, man, I really want some Rumble Pack functionality when I'm whacking these dudes. I know, yeah. I, I mean, it, it is pretty satisfying, and even like going through as the uh, the fighter. You know, the downside of the fighter is that you have to kind of be up in your enemy's faces and you don't really have much in the way of, like, ranged weapons. But the he's final super... weapon that the fighter gets is, like, this green, flaming green sword yeah. that, like, shoots this realm of, pa- like, flame ahead of it. It's really awesome looking. It's Yeah, it's great. And, like, but he's fun to play because he's much faster and much stronger, so you can get in there and just kind of, like, beat the shit out of everybody. Uh so, like, the core gameplay itself is fun. Like, I found the looking up and down part to be annoying because that's been mapped to the D-pad. Yeah, and, it was really hard to get that to work. And luckily, that's not, like, a big thing you have to do often, but sometimes you will have, like, a flaming bat enemy or something that you can only hit if you're looking up. I uh, mean, the hit detection is, like, super-duper generous. Oh, there yeah. were so many times where I would just be seeing that the enemy was way out of range, but I would still be able to whack them with the mace. Well, it's kind of got that Doom engine of, like, if you're facing generally in the right direction, then you're probably yeah. going to hit them, uh, it was which funny is with a, the, a blessing, yeah. Yeah, the inability to look up and down. I was at the top of the bell tower, and I hadn't even figured out you could use the control pad to look up and down, so I was trying to walk downstairs without, with, like, try that at home, folks. If you get bored, look straight forward and try to walk down your stairs, and don't sue us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you compare this to Doom 64, like, they tried to give that one a little bit of a graphical overhaul, you know, try and make it look a little bit more like a Nintendo 64 game. Hexen really doesn't do that. This looks and plays like a PC game from 1995, which I think is almost better like than than if they tried to like make this look a little chunkier and something. It actually would look a little less uh, timeless, I guess. Timeless isn't the right yeah, word. Yeah, I mean, but... and I, I, again, I liked how sort of bright this game was. I wish there were a few more environments that were more sort of out in the open or brighter, things like that. Um, because a lot of it just kind of feels like samey sort of caverns or churches. Um, but I did I did like the aesthetic a lot. And the frame rate is also really smooth, which is which is a rare thing in these kind of games. I imagine that if you play it in the <laughs> multiplayer mode, it all goes to hell in terms of graphical fidelity and frame rate. But honestly, just two-player, it becomes very hard to see what the hell is going on just with this squatch screen so. you know you you give them points for trying but uh yeah no i i don't i think this is kind of meant to be a single player experience also uh as a little extra note be sure to clear out your memory card before you try playing this game because a save game in this takes a whopping 90 pages i hadn't on used your my memory pack. card in so long i couldn't remember i'm like this takes 90 pages that seems like a lot but i can't remember if that's a lot. I mean, the biggest file I had on my memory card when I went in to clean it up was, like, I forget what it was, but it was 12 pages. Oh, my God. Like, and then, like, I looked at my Rayman 2 save game, which was, like, a complete game. One page. You know, so 90 (laughs) pages is a lot. Uh, You pretty much need to have a clear memory card, especially if you want to save different games, like, (laughs) as different fighters. So, uh, yeah. I have no idea why I'd take up so much space. It's not like there's a roster modifier where you can go in and, like, assign the guys to the Arizona Cardinals or something. Yeah. That's usually, that's, like, a bunch of different stats or something. That's something that I think this game could have actually really used that would have been pretty neat is some real RPG mechanics of, like, when you go in, you actually kind of design your character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
like, or like I think you it could take be... some of the elements from the next game we're talking about and put it into this game and then make them work. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, I think that would be a really fun way to... Yeah, I think you need to lean into the RPG element of it a little more. Like, right now, I think Hexen kind of struggles with uh, with identity crisis a little bit, you know? It's like, it's trying so hard to be, like, just kind of a, a, a more intricate version of Doom, but it does feel and look very, very much like Doom. Uh so, I mean, yeah, I think it could have used a little bit more development. I never played the sequel. There is another game after this. Uh, they concluded the Serpent Rider trilogy in 1997 with Hexen 2, which uh, the reviews at the time were, were polite, but generally unenthusiastic. I think they kind of just said it's just the same game again. Um, and uh, it didn't really do well commercially. And then there was one more game in the series done without any in- input from id Software, and that was uh, Heretic 2, which is kind of confusingly titled, because Heretic was the first and the last game in this series. Um, that came out in 1998, and it took place after the events of this trilogy. But that game, though, was also a significant commercial failure, and it effectively closed the coffin on this series forever. Uh, I don't, I, I think I feel pretty safe in saying this is not a series we're going to see again. Which is a shame. This actually, this made me really want a kind of modern first person, like first person action fantasy game. Yeah. And it's something that it would be kind of comparable to the Elder Scrolls just in terms of how it looked and maybe how it played, but something that would just be way faster and have sort of more over the top violence and magical spells. Oh man. Like just something that almost plays, yeah, it just plays like basically your new Doom in that level of speed. But instead of using guns, you just have big axes and, like, lightning spells. See, that sounds amazing. Now I'm thinking of, like, Skyrim with the speed and the uh, action of Doom 2016. Yeah, and exactly. I'm just, like, all all in on that. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I have to say Speak, about Hexen. Speaking Do you have anything of else? things that sound amazing, yeah, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's move to on to our next that game. At one point sounded amazing oh man the story behind this game is just fascinating and like if if you uh if you enjoy the taste of sour grapes as much as i do i think you'll really like this story so our next game is die katana sometimes called john romero's die katana this was released july 31st 2000 and i guess i should clarify that was the date this became available as a blockbuster exclusive rental only title uh, it did get a retail release in November 26 of 2000, so, you know, but yeah, that's when the game hit the console market. This was the, it's a, it's a oh, really yeah. awful business model to start something as a rental exclusive and then try to sell it to people. Yeah. Because oh, they're like, oh, I guess I'm really excited for this game, but I can only rent it. I guess I'll rent it. And then it comes out two months later, and you're like, well, I know I'm not going to purchase that. Yeah, already Whereas, played it, like, didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like you got to get those early sort of duping people sales uh, exactly, before you get yeah. the rental. So this was released by or developed by Ion Storm, and uh, on the N64, is published by Chemco. It was IDOS on the uh, PC. And this was also released on Windows, and there is a version on Game Boy Color, although that's kind of a top-down action-adventure RPG a la Zelda, weirdly. It's it's probably the best version of this game. I have to imagine. Just going to assume, yeah. Yeah. All right, so firstly, we need to have a quick refresher on John Romero. We've talked about him a couple times. Very important figure in video games. Um, Romero is one of the co-founders with John Carmack, Tom Hall, and Adrian Carmack of id Software. So if we're putting the guys from id in, like, 
Beatles terms. I think Carmack was more like the the McCartney. He was like the work obsessed, like perfectionist guy. And Romero was Lenin. He's 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 got a lot of vision and a lot of ideas, but he wants to do things his own way, and he wants to like come and go as he pleases. So, so they clashed. The, the Romero and Carmack they clashed a lot over the development of Quake. Uh, the two really couldn't agree on an artistic direction, which is why it's this kind of weird mashup of medieval sci-fi and demonic tropes. And Carmack accused Romero of not pulling his weight. Uh, he said sometimes he would disappear for days or even weeks at a time, and then he would just kind of show up and make a bunch of demands about what the game should be and then leave again. So uh, Romero felt that he was the true visionary of the duo, and he split in 1995 to form his own company, Ion Storm. Let's talk about Ion Storm. This had a rather short and infamous run. So it was co-founded by Romero, and uh, he also roped in his fellow id founder, Tom Hall. Uh, they, you know, so they're fresh off this dizzying success. They had triple blockbusters. They had Wolfenstein, Doom, and Quake all in a row, all massive, like, genre-defining games. And so Romero had a ton of hype, and he was kind of this, like, he was the closest the industry had to a rock star at the time. Uh, Ion Storm, uh, they, they, they had a lot of ambition right out the gate. They set up shop in Dallas, and immediately they rented out a $2 million penthouse suite at the top of the city's tallest skyscraper, and they spent very, very lavishly on their new offices. It had uh, dormitories, it had a game room, it had shower rooms, it had all this stuff before they ever developed their first game. Like, the thing that springs to mind for me with this is Entertainment 720 on Parks and Rec. Like, they they spend so ludicrously lavishly, but they have nothing to show for it and no source of revenue. So the, it's like it's an assumption that like if just people will whatever you're going to make, people will just sort of fall in. It's kind of like a very early tech bubble thing. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. They were on top of the world at this time. Uh, so the first game that Ion Storm ever developed was an RTS called Dominion Storm Over Gift 3. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, that went several hundred thousand dollars over budget and was completely shellacked in sales because they decided to release that the same day as the first demo for Starcraft came out. Uh, So people were way more interested in playing that RTS for a good reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Have you heard of Anachronox? (laughs) That's their follow-up game to Daikatana, uh, which apparently that one has its fans. I think that's another like RTS game. But again, that was just a massive, massive commercial failure and no one's heard of it. The company would have been a total wash if they hadn't opened a satellite office in Austin in 1997. And they put a guy named Warren Spector in charge of that. So Spectre and his team would be responsible for Deus Ex, which was a massive, massive critical and commercial success. Um, it, it was funny. Like, in my playing of Daikatana, mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, this game kind of reminds me of Deus Ex if it was garbage. Okay. And so it was interesting to hear that, like, the the same company basically made Deus Ex, which is like Deus Ex, but not garbage. And that's a series the, I've never delved into, really. It's kind of a big blind spot. I've meant to get into it. I've, I hear it's fun. Is, yeah, it's really neat because it is a first-person shooter, but it really kind of leans into these RPG elements in a way that makes sense. Um, in a way that works to the mechanics, like as you sort of do different things in your in the game, that particular skill increases, and it's kind of more open world. Yeah, it's so kind of you I'll can get, approach I'll it in any order you why, want. Yeah, yeah, and that's sort of what makes the RPG elements work. I'll get to why the RPG elements don't work in Daikatana. Oh yes, yeah. But needless to say, I think so. IDOS uh, they had purchased a uh, controlling stake in Ion Storm. 
And uh, I think they made the very sound decision to close down the Dallas branch and just shift all development over to Warren Spector in the Austin branch. Uh, and uh, the company did officially shutter in 2005, but the Deus Ex series is still going strong. It, it, it uh, survived all the negative fallout, and I believe it's with Square Enix now. Uh, I think there was a new game just like three or four years ago, something like that. Yeah, it's still a popular series. All right, we got to get into the development of Daikatana. This story, oh my god. I, few games, few games in history have been as devastating to a company's bottom line as Daikatana. I mean, this game... Not since, not since The Last Express. Not since The Last Express or arguably Shenmue, which you could maybe make mm. the case killed an entire console. Um, but this was, it's looked at now as this big flop, as this ill-advised vanity project from an untested team. But in the early going, the hype for this game was overwhelming. So IDOS, we mentioned earlier, uh, they were the development giant behind Tomb Raider, which was like the biggest hit of the decade for some people. And, uh, it, they felt so confident about this game's prospects that they purchased a controlling stake of Ion Storm. And there were articles in Time, the New York Times, praising John Romero as a genius without ever seeing a single frame of the game. And Romero, for his part, was feeding into the hype at every opportunity. He wildly overpromised on when the game would be ready. He claimed to have a full game with 35 weapons and more than 60 enemies in less than 12 months. Uh, when he made that claim, John Carmack publicly dragged him for making those claims, saying that it would barely be possible for like an extremely experienced design team. And most of the people they were hiring at Ion Storm had never developed a game in their life. He was hiring heavily out of the modding community. So a lot of these people were just complete amateurs. I feel like um, John Carmack is kind of one of the unsung heroes of the video game industry. Like for us being console gamers, like it's amazing what he's sort of achieved that was able to like bleed over into just like massive video game innovations. And he's not really someone that people talk about that much. Yeah, yeah, because I think he's he's always been more of a uh, I mean, he's a, he's a nerd. You know, he's he's more of a tech guy. He's behind this. He's he's all about developing. Oh, I mean, new... John Romero is clearly a nerd too. Oh, he's, he's just yeah. a different kind of nerd different flavor he's like yeah. a nerd who wants to show you his collection of antique battle axes <laughs> you know he's got them uh so yeah uh development started on daikatana in 1997 and they set a 1998 release date uh and the company made one of their biggest mistakes right out the gate one of the biggest mistakes any video game company has ever made when they approved a now infamous ad campaign for the game it didn't show a single image of the game it was just a blood red background with the words John Romero is going to make you his bitch in the center. And the charming slogan down below was, suck it down. Suck it down. Suck it down. So at this time, like, to be fair, John Romero was kind of famous uh, within the gaming community for being like a big trash talker in online multiplayer games. That's kind of the thing he was known for. So, like, it fit with the image that people had of him at the time. But do you really want to play a game with a slogan like this? Like, do you, does this sound like an appealing, fun time for you? Oh, oh, this developer who you may or may not know is making a game that's going to make you his bitch. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it, it, it does sound awful. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's like needlessly aggressive right off the bat. Super gross. Yeah, um, it, just, it, it automatically triggers the response of like, well... I'm, I don't want to be any part of this. Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's like, well, if, that, if that's your attitude, I'm, I'm taking my controller and I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm not coming to rent your game from Blockbuster. Yeah, exactly. But uh, to be fair, Romero has apologized for this ad I mean, in recent years. it's not years. like he wrote the ad. Somebody, he didn't write you know, the ad. And, and I guess he, he approved it, and then uh, he got cold feet about it and tried to go back on it, but like then he got talked into releasing it after all. 
And now years later, he's just kind of like, oh, my God, what the hell was I thinking? Like, I he, he strikes me as a guy who's mellowed out like a lot in the in the last couple of years. I think he's been humbled by, well, Daikatana, in fact. Um, so, yeah, so he, he calls it one of the biggest regrets of his career. And it, it struck a very sour tone with what would prove to be an extremely difficult production. So in the early going, Daikatana was using the Quake engine. And the game was well into development and already behind schedule when the team abruptly decided to switch the game over to the Quake 2 engine. Or I say the team, I should say Romero decided to switch over to the Quake 2 engine because he saw it, he was really impressed with it, and he insisted. Uh, but the Ion Storm staff hated this idea. They kept insisting this would take so long, they would basically have to rebuild the game from scratch. But he insisted, uh, and he promised uh, that it would only delay production by a few weeks. In fact, it delayed production by more than a year, and things were already getting tense around the Ion Storm offices. So the company was hemorrhaging employees. More than 20 people left during the production. Nine of them left on a single day. And as a side note, they went on to form their own development company, which made the unbelievably terrible Dreamcast shooter Kiss Psycho Circus. So oh, there you go. If that, that, could, that, that game's a shooter? That's a shooter. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, it's really ter- terrible. <laughs> Um, I, I definitely get the feeling that, like, the basic idea behind Daikatana was just kind of Ramiro coming in, like, to the office and be like, hey, what if we had time travel in it? Yeah. And they're like, uh, and he's like, put time travel in it. It'll be great. And they're like, uh. <laughs> I'm off to <laughs> and then he, my then he leaves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then he comes back the next week and he's like, oh, what if there was an ally system and do it in a new engine? Yeah. And put in RPG elements. Yeah. All right, I'll, yeah. I'll he, be back in a week once you've put all that stuff in. Like, I, I don't like... I don't like the idea of calling anyone like lazy, but that's that's the word that kept circulating around Romero, both at, during his time at id and his time at Ion Storm. They said he would kind of just kind of come and go as he pleased. Uh, he spent most of the day just like playing online games and didn't seem terribly invested. But every once in a while, he would pop in, throw out some ideas, expect everyone to incorporate it and then just disappear again. Well, it's an idea of like, I mean, it's the idea of leadership and what that sort of means. Yeah. And does it mean that you just tell everyone else what to do and then they do it? I, I don't think so. Like, you have to go sort of get your hands dirty and show that, like, this can be done and be like, show an example yourself of, like, this is how I want it to work. Because if yeah. you just go in and sort of share your idea and assume everyone else will just do it, there's no, I don't know, you need people to sort of trust that you have investment and actually you could get it to work yourself see that's why <laughs> like i'm if, not if, a big fan yeah, of like ahead. auteur theory like with uh, yeah. uh filmmaking because film and video games are there they're a collaborative process you need like dozens and dozens of people not just to facilitate your vision but to check you and to put in the work and do things like that so this idea that a production a multi-million dollar video game production like this is all just stemming from one guy you know it's it's not a healthy thought to be thinking of, you know. Um, no, there, there's very few few works of at least, <laughs> yeah, in the video game or film industry that uh, are like have been very successful if one person just has unchecked sort of freedom. Yeah, that's how you get things. like the room and and fateful findings and, and things <laughs> like that. Like, yeah, or uh, the Phantom Menace, or the Phantom Menace. Or Daikatana, because this game finally, finally released on May 22nd, 2000. That's more than two years later than they said it would be. 
Uh, not only had the game been plagued with negative buzz around its whole troubled production, but now it had to contend with all of these genre-defining shooters that had come out in between these release dates, like Quake 3, Unreal, and Half-Life. So what would have been like mildly impressive in 1998 when Daikatana was supposed to come out now seemed just completely antiquated. Like Half-Life had kind of, especially Half-Life, I think, had redefined what shooters could and should be. And Daikatana felt like a relic, like immediately upon hitting the shelves. Because what this game is, is it's clearly a game that has real interest in actually like telling a story and having a narrative and being more than just like, oh, you run around and blast things, which is basically, you know, what Quake and Hexen do. Yeah. Are, you know, um, and that sort of, yeah, but it's all so unpolished compared to something like Half-Life, which sort of integrated the storytelling in so naturally. Yeah. So I put, I start up Daikatan on my N64. Yeah. And you're First greeted, of all, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're greeted to this cutscene that may be the most boring cutscene oh my I have god ever so seen long. in a game and i was so trying to take notes long. i was trying to take notes on what the plot of this game was like and i couldn't really get a good beat on what it was so i'm like all right well, i'll watch the cutscenes and figure it out right from the start you're just you're Ugh. like this weird sort of future cyborg guy with this stupid looking ponytail and you're you're standing in your it, the world is unclear. I don't know where we're supposed to be. It looks like some kind of Neo Tokyo type of thing. Yeah, but that's I'm just that's kind it. of extrapolating. Yeah. And you're like slicing around these sort of wooden dummies, and the animation just <laughs> looks like garbage. Like it's clearly your sword sort of. I don't know. They, the, it sort of doesn't actually make connection with them, and you just see them slide in half. And then you'll put your sword in your sheath, and it just kind of goes through, clips through. And the anime, I, the animation here is so terrible looking. It was almost funny, because like there's a lot of frames being skipped and just like, and it's a clear attempt for like things to look cool. But in how shitty the animation is, they're pretty. It's pretty humorous. Like, so you're in your you're in your office where you meditate and fight wood dolls, and oh, yeah, you start doing not, like uh, handstand push-ups. Yeah, exactly. Really terrible looking at stand push-ups. And then this old man knocks on the door, and it just again the, the animation is just terrible, and the textures are terrible. I I have not played this game for PC. I'm sure it's not great for PC, but it does seem like a symptom of probably you know overhype and underdeliver. Whereas it looks so much better than the N64 version. This is such a butchered port. Like holy shit, it does not. It does not feel like a port. Like, I was watching some video of the first level on PC, and I'm like, that doesn't even seem like the first level of what I played on Nintendo 64, because it just looks so much more detailed on PC. And it's not a great-looking game for PC, but holy shit, is it ugly for N64. It feels like a game that, like, came out for a system of a later generation, and then they're like, oh, we're going to demake this as like a weird coding exercise to see if we can possibly get it to run on N64. And um, tell me if I'm crazy here. Do you think the hero is modeled after Romero? It looked like his face. It looked like he put himself into the main character and just made himself like get higher cheekbones and abs. <laughs> Okay. Like, it really looks like him to me. I don't know I don't if I'm know, just reading too much into that. I can't imagine anyone would want this kind of character model modeled after themselves. No, I can't. Because yeah. it just looks so awful. You wouldn't look at that. Um, okay, like, a, a general plot from what I've understood. Like, yeah, you start 
the, uh, the opening year is like 2450 or something like that. You're in Tokyo. You're the descendant. Uh, your, your character's name is Hiro Miyamoto, named after Shigeru Miyamoto. Because, uh, yeah, he'd love to be associated with this one. Um, but, yeah, your, your character is like he, uh, a descendant of an ancient sword maker who created uh, the Daikatana, which is Japanese literally for big sword. Um, and uh, apparently this thing has the power to, like, kill evil or make you travel in time kept, or like, something like that. adding more powers to it. Like, in the story, it was such a poorly written piece of dialogue. Yeah. Because he, like... Flashback to these old times, and then there was these warring clans, and then the Taikatana like was sealed away, and then there was like this giant plague, and then it let you travel through time. And I'm like, what is the narrative here? I just my brain. I don't know if my brain has shut down so quickly. Like as soon as the guy started talking, there's yeah. no voice. There's no voice. No voice. In this game. It's just it's just or, or mouth movements or interesting camera angles. The camera's kind of just wandering around this room as this sort of just text goes on the screen. And these scenes are like five, six minutes long. Like they are so long and the characters are barely moving. And I'm just like, what are we looking at here? What are we doing? And eventually I just decided I didn't care and I just skipped ahead. The important notes, I guess, are that eventually after you get past this first level, you obtain the Daikatana and you can start traveling to different points in time. You get to go to ancient Greece, you get to go to medieval Norway, uh, and then you get to go to, like, uh, kind of roughly modern-day San Francisco. It's set in 2030, but that's, like, closer to modern-day than, yeah. Um, which, like, I, I'm going to give this game uh, uh, the minorest little bit of credit. I think it has some cool ideas. Yeah, well, it, it certainly has a lot of ideas. Yeah, it has a lot of ideas. I don't I don't think any of them have been implemented well, but, like, they, they have ideas. I think the time travel one is an interesting one. Um, and and I think you get weapons that correspond to those different times. Yeah, which I also really like. Like, yeah, so you, you get different weapons in ancient Greece than you would get in Neo-Tokyo. It makes sense, and it gives you a nice variety of weapons to choose from. Uh, but the weapons are just not fun to use. I mean, I'll, I'll get to the weapons. I think the one of the things we need to talk about is that the Nintendo 64 port inadvertently fixed what a lot of people thought was, like, the worst flaw of the PC version uh, without even meaning to. So in the PC version, you have two AI-controlled partners with you on at all times. These are, uh, what's her name, Mikiko, who's a descendant of the Ebehara clan, and Superfly Johnson, a very offensive black stereotype character who's like a mercenary guy. Um, I'm sorry, I'm still like sticking on the fact that he named a black character Superfly in a game in 2000. That's That's melting my brain. But yeah, so you have these two AI-controlled characters uh, that help you, you know, fight and look for puzzles and stuff. But the problem is the AI in the PC version was basically non-functional. Uh, the characters would just kind of do whatever they wanted. They would run off cliffs. They would run into lava. They would do all this shit. And if any one of your two characters dies, then the game is over. So you have triple the chances to die at any given time. I hate that in Ugh. games. That's always so weird to me, like, when a game ends because a character dies. Like, StarCraft and the Blizzard games would have that. Yeah. They'd have, like, missions where, like, if Jim Rayner dies, you lose. Yeah. And you're like, but what what is going on in this story? Like, I haven't lost the war. Like, what happens? Did they die? And they're like, oh, I guess we humans just give up now. Because, that's right. that's kind of just like the game saying, it's like, oh, no, okay, okay, we can't tell you why, but he's going to be important later, so he can't die. All right, all right, continue. But you can still play with him, just don't hurt him, because we need him later. Okay, bye. 
Like <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a really bad mechanic. Like Fire Emblem kind of fixed that by like the person's like I have to retreat and go like recover at home, yeah. so I can still be involved in the story even though you can't fight with me anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's mm. not a bad way to go. But uh, the Nintendo 64's hardware couldn't handle having two AI-controlled characters on screen at any time, so they just decided to drop that feature, which was to the the benefit of the N64 because you can actually play it ish. The, whereas the uh, original version of Daikatana, like the original marketing motto was suck it down. Yeah. I would say the marketing motto for the N64 port was drop that feature. Drop that feature. Yeah, drop <laughs> them features. Yeah, there's just a, a real sense of whatever sort of might have been cool in the PC version um, was just way too much for the N64 to handle. Whether it was or not, I'm sure a lot of it was just due to real lazy and fast porting job. But, like, the weapons in this game, you just kind of float. There's no sense of, like, your character is actually walking. Like, your your gun is just sort of floating through the atmosphere. And the sound here is just these very repetitive riffs. Oh, God. Um, I was so that scared. clearly just feel like they were part of a longer thing that was sort of cut down into this 10-second repetitive riff. So unpleasant to listen to. Uh, I guess the other big, like, feature that this game has, and we were talking about it with Hexen, like, this should have been incorporated into Hexen, is that there are some, like, very light RPG mechanics where you have your stats listed on the screen at all times. Well, they're big. They take they're up, big. like, they're, take up, like, the whole left side of the screen almost, or I guess the left, like, eighth maybe. Yeah. But. And there are six different stats, like, uh, you know, your attack and your speed and stuff like that, and av- from killing a certain number of enemies, you get another skill point that kind of randomly assigned to one of your stats. It's also crazy to think, like, there's a world where, like, oh, I've leveled up, now I do more damage with this gun. Yeah, my, it's like gun. power is raised. It's gonna do the same amount of damage no matter what you do. It's like if you flick your wrist while you're shooting a gun, it doesn't make it, like, hit you harder. I don't know, like... But, okay, so they, they've got these RPG mechanics. You can you can level up your character by running around killing things. Did you notice any difference whatsoever in the gameplay from, like, a leveled-up character to a non-leveled-up character? I got my character almost maxed out. And oh, wow. Like, okay, you, you got a lot farther in this game than I did. I really but, uh, stuck with it. I was really trying... I really wanted to get to a, a time travel level. Okay, uh, I found the actual ac- the actual playing of this game to be so unpleasant. Oh, but, so um, much. Yeah, no, I, I noticed no real difference. Maybe it was a placebo effect of when I like my speed game up, I felt like I was going faster. They also have, like, way too many stats in this game. Yeah. Considering all you do in this game is run and shoot, like, I don't know why there's an acrobatics stat. There's not, like, a backflip button in this no. game. No, I mean, there it's is very weird. a whole bunch of terrible, terrible platforming, but um, yeah. the, the acro stat doesn't seem to help you with that at yeah. all. Well, the thing that's crazy about it is you have no... The reason that the RPG mechanics don't work is there's no customization involved. The game is super linear. You're always going to be fighting the same enemies and going through the level the same way. So you and your stats level up in a fixed way. You you don't like get a certain amount of experience points and then you can choose which stat to level up. It's just like, oh, you've killed 10 enemies, you get a vitality point. You killed 10 more enemies, now you get a damage point. So there it, it does doesn't nothing. make any sense. No, it makes no difference whatsoever. I mean, all right, let's let's talk about the we- the weapons a little bit because you start the game with like uh, I think it's called a disruptor, but it's basically just like two knives on your fist. It's a it's a melee weapon, and uh, it's incredibly weak. 
So oh, and it's so it's so wimpy. It's so unsatisfying. So like, unsatisfying. Whereas Hexen like had like the fighter punch was like. Oh yeah, you, you felt like totally you were blow sort up of a guy's punching head. through dude's skulls. Yeah, like this is just the weakest looking attack. Yeah, and so you wander in the level when it first opens. First of all, uh, like it is an assault on your eyes. The moment this game actually starts, it is just this gray pastiche of nonsense. You walk out into an open area, you start taking damage, you have no idea from where. It turns out it's a little turret mounted on a ceiling, but you can't see it unless you're, like, directly under it because the the graphics are so bad. So I died, like, immediately, and then I had to start over, like, walk my way around until I found a gun, and then I could take it down. But, like, literally... Yeah, I don't know why they don't start you with a gun. No. Like, the first... Okay, and it's also crazy. Like, in the initial cutscene of this game, you're fighting with a sword. Yeah. And then you start... The, the way this game starts, this game has a crazy story. Like, the old man gets killed by ninjas, and he's like, to sneak into this villain's castle, you need to hide in my coffin. Yeah. So you get in the coffin with him, and then these random sort of death cart guys in a big truck come and pick you up and this part is crazy too because like in the cutscene, you're like waving the guys down like hey we're over here with the coffin and then they get out of the car and you hide in the coffin like, but like at what moment did you hide between flagging them down where did those guys think you went like yeah, they no. saw you they saw it's like it's like oh gee i wonder if this guy's hiding in this coffin like it's so obvious what you're doing and then the coffins fall out of the car the truck, like, off a bridge, it's like that scene in um, the Simpsons episode where they're in the uh, sensory deprivation tanks oh, yeah, and yeah. the place gets repossessed. It's that exact scene. Um, but he still winds up where he was trying to go anyway. I know, and, like, why did you even have that scene? And uh, just this is just a thing for games in general. But don't make—so many games make, like, your first level just the shittiest— like most unappealing location. Yeah. Like you're starting in just like a bog. It's literally marsh. Yeah. Like start your game with like a cool set piece. Be like Uncharted 2 where you're dangling off a train and you're like, holy shit, this is awesome. How did I get here? Fuck yes. Yeah. Don't start with like, oh, you got to fight some rats in the cellar. Like I get that you got to pad your game out, but put that shit in the middle. Like once we're actually engaged with the game. Yeah. Like actually start strong. Jump us out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And so, yeah, you, you don't start with any weapon aside from these shitty punches. I don't know why that's not a sword, but, um, yeah. the, you actually the fucking have to game wa- is called big sword. <laughs> yeah. You have to walk and actually pick up the gun to fight this turret. Yeah, this is just like a brutal turret yeah. right from the start. And so you finally get this gun. The weapon switching mechanic is is way too hard. Jesus, I hated uh, this. You have to like hold B and then like it brings up this wheel. I finally learned that you can just use the control pad left and right to switch weapons, oh, which God. works. I wish yeah. I knew that, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, then you finally shoot this turret. You keep going. There's two more turrets. And then you get to a third turret. And I was just, I guess a fourth turret. I was just, like, destroying this turret. I'm like, holy shit, I know how to take out these turrets now. And so I was just, like, pounding my gun into that turret. And it would not die. And I'm like, why won't this turret die? I just destroyed three of them. I know how this works. Because this one, you have to hit the fucking fuse box. Yeah, but you're like, there's no indication that it did. I just blew up three turrets that this worked fine. Why is this turret different than all the other ones? Yeah. and I mean, Why is this turret invincible except for the fuse box, which dies in one hit? We need to talk about these weapons, too, okay? Because, yeah, we were talking about how it's cool that each world has its own unique suite of weapons. 
but all of the weapons in this game kind of just look like shapes. Like, they don't really have any personality to them. Uh, a lot of the time, you can't even see ammo coming out of them, like, when you fire, because, like, the frame rate's so bad. But this first weapon that you get, the Ion Blaster, is far and away the best one. And the game is weirdly super, super stingy with ammo. Like, it's a first-person shooter. I was constantly running out of ammunition. You have to use a shitty knife. Like, that's literally... And you start, it's, and when you kill enemies, they don't drop weapons or ammo. Uh, so you just have to, like, wander around the level until you find some pickups. So, yeah, a lot of the time you are just stuck with that weapon. Um, but, like, it... The, the other problem I had was when you get some of the stronger weapon, there's one called a shot cycler, which is just like a little mini Gatling gun. Uh, the recoil on almost every weapon in this is crazy. Like, and I didn't even really super notice it until uh, the, the first mission, second level, you're supposed to be going up an elevator, taking out enemies that are kind of like positioned along the way. Oh, yeah. And every time you where fire, I gave up on the game. I, I did too. And then I went back and I tried again and I kept going. But... Uh, you're, you're riding the elevator, you fire your gun, and the recoil is so bad, it pushes you off the elevator, and you take damage when you land. And you have to do this, like, four or five times. Like, you can use the Ion Blaster, which doesn't have recoil, except you're out of fucking ammo all the time, because there's no the ammo. Ion Blaster, it's still, though, like, if you shoot it near a wall, it will kind of make an explosion that will hurt you. I managed to kill myself by shooting into a wall with the Ion Blaster. It's like, that's your default gun. Why? Why is it? That's just a bad mechanic in game, games in general. Your own gun should not be able to hurt you. Like, it I don't makes care sense. if it's a rocket launcher or what. Yeah, but, like, but I mean, if, if it is a rocket launcher, grenade launcher, something like that, I get it. Like, it may, there's some logic to that, you know, but like, I don't know. And I guess, yeah, if you fire a gun, like, against a wall while you're standing right next to the wall, it will probably bounce back and yeah, hurt you. But this is a game about, like, time-traveling cyborgs. Like, I don't really care yeah. about how realistic that's going to be. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the control controls in this thing are just a mess in general. There comes a point where you have to crouch underneath a... Yeah, I almost uh, gave up there. Yeah. This is literally after you destroy the third turret. Yeah, oh yeah, right you get in the to this gate that is, you're like, oh, I'll just crouch under that gate. And then you go, wait a second. Yeah. I don't know how to crouch. I was literally looking at the N64 controller, uh -huh. turning it around, being like, is there a button on this controller I never knew about? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> what? okay, I have pressed every button. I have tried every combination. <laughs> Turns out the answer is you have to press and hold the A button and then tap R, and that's Jump. how you crouch. I had to look up an FAQ I did to figure out how to get under this door. Yeah, yeah. That's... And I mean, there are other weird like uh, design decisions like... Uh, you change, you toggle from like run to walk by pressing yeah, up on the D-pad. I don't know why that's in there at all. They're identical. Your speeds are identical whether you're run or walking. Like I think you're maybe slightly faster when you're running, but yeah. it's not going to make a difference. No, just assign the down button. Just have, okay, if you really want all these mechanics, just have crouch be down on the pad instead of, so yeah, it's like shifting in a racing game. Up on the pad makes you run, and down on the pad makes you walk. Like, you don't just press the same one twice. If you press down on the pad while you're walking, it won't do anything. So, like, just make it easy. Put down, if you want to crouch, just put that down on the pad, and you want to toggle between run and walk, put that up on the pad. Bam. I Okay, so, like I said, I was really, really trying to get through this first level so that I could see some time travel stuff. Uh, I made it through four of these missions, um, like, which is, I think, the, the elevator part where you fall off. That's mission one. I made it well past this. I spent most of my morning doing this. I'm very angry. Um, but 
the the further along you get on, there are a lot of moments that require precision platforming, which fucking sucks. Uh, this game is not built for that, and you have to do it. So there's one section where you have to uh, hit a switch to extend a walkway, and then you have to run across the room, get on a very slow-moving elevator, take it back up to the platform, run over to the bridge before it goes back. You have about 10 seconds to do this, uh, and it's usually... the bridge is usually going to start retracting on you no matter how fast you are it's going to retract on you and you have to jump the last little bit except your jump controls don't work when you're standing on a moving platform they just aren't responsive at all so i was just falling over and over and over and over and over again like it took so long to get past that part so then like you were talking about how irritating it was to backtrack i got to the point where you rescue heavy sigh superfly johnson you you rescue you find him caged up being tortured and uh, he tells you he tells you straight up go backtrack there's a key hidden behind a, a logo back there just retrace your steps so the game is literally telling you to backtrack and you have to go a while back like not just a little bit you have to go like halfway back through the level to find this logo uh, shoot it and then get it back so I finally reached my breaking point at the very last world of the very last section like according to the faq i was really close to just getting to go back in time um you're in this vault and in order to access it you have to jump up these tiny 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 little platforms which takes fucking forever uh if you uh go higher than the first platform you will take damage from falling so i literally died and had to restart the level trying to get up these little platforms and then when I finally got over there, I got to the point where I was supposed to cross a little bridge and get the Daikatana and move on. The game broke and I couldn't press the button that was supposed to activate the drawbridge. Like I literally couldn't activate it. I pressed every button and then I looked it up and other people said, oh, yeah, this will happen like half the time. <laughs> like half the time you can't play this own fucking game. Like unbelievable, unbelievable how broken this game is. It's unbelievable. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure that the PC version of this game is much better. Aside from, like, the super terrible, like, AI which renders it unplayable. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. This this game, the N64 port just feels unplayable in, like, every other way. And, like, I don't know in what situation you really want to go and play Daikatana, but, like, it, it, you don't do it on the N64. Yeah, I, I <laughs> no. feel like the only reason to play Daikatana is just to kind of see how bad it is and just see that we're not exaggerating i mean i don't think this is the worst game we've played on the n64 i do think it's the one that's made me the most furious well you definitely gave it more of a chance than a lot of the i other really ones. really tried because like you know there, there's a stink around this game and i wanted to kind of challenge that a little bit you know i didn't want to just go in assuming it's going to be what everyone says it is you know i wanted to give it a fair shake and uh, i feel like i did and the game did not shake back fairly. No, it was, uh, it, it's it's every bit as bad as you've heard. Not just as a bungled production, but just as a bad product. It's just a bad yes. game. It's very, and yeah, especially this N64 version. It's just, it's so lifeless. And I feel like this is sort of a key difference between, like, very truly bad games and, like, or I guess just sort of mediocre average games and like very truly bad ones is the sense of lifelessness where you just as you play them, you're like, 
what what is going on with my life like why am i why am i spending time playing this game because there's just they're so unengaging in any way because there's no sound everything is so unsatisfying to like all the guns are so unsatisfying to use and the whole thing just feels so sort of sad it's all just like sort of like recycled out of better games and better movies and better ideas you know it's yeah because you're like fund you're like fundamentally i've played games like this and have been engaged by them yeah but i don't know why this one is just so unfun yeah you know and it's just yeah it's just like nothing here sort of works or is engaging in any way no it's it's a real slog uh did you get to play with the multiplayer at all on this one i didn't no, i didn't i didn't even mess with it i, didn't like I said it, i got i got two uh two elevators in and i'm like fuck this game I, this was a game that i i have often complained about the sort of awkwardness of watching games yeah. and like doing things on twitch this is a game i stopped playing and went and watched a let's play yeah because i'm like i would it'd be much more pleasant to just see someone else play this game i mean a multiplayer <laughs> mode seems unlikely because i can't imagine someone who owns this game having friends <laughs> uh, i think i yeah. mean it, we'll, we'll experiment we'll get back to you listeners one in a, in a, in a hopefully a month we'll, or so we'll, and yeah I'll, I'll yeah we'll hold our nose we'll, and try we that will out try the four player mode yes um, all right, I think we're about ready to move on to our uh, our rankings before my blood pressure gets too much higher. But um, each week we are ranking the games that we have just played and adding them to our master list. Uh, what do you want to start us off on this one? Sure. Um, so how many games are on our list, Steve? I feel like that's helpful to we get some are, context. I think we're right around 220. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Hexen I liked. I thought it was neat and I liked the aesthetic a lot. It was a fun game to play for like I played it for about an hour and um, I then I just unlocked the cheat menu and started dicking around with that. Oh, that's a way better. Which way. is a lot of fun yeah. too. Um, so I'm putting it number seventy six, which is right behind Mace: The Dark Age. Ooh, good and company. I feel like those games, yeah, those games kind of go hand in hand. They really do. Um, yeah, in terms of just like bland fantasy silliness. Man, I would actually um, really love to see Hexen with like Mace's character models because I remember that game looks fantastic. Yeah. And that would that would yeah. actually be really cool. Some sort of mashup of that. Um, Daikatana was very very bad. Oh. Um, I'm putting it at number two hundred and nine, which is sort of I guess ahead of like the, the just absolute abysmal garbage, but it's still sort of in that camp. Yeah, um, that's right below Hey You Pikachu. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm I'm in a similar boat. I think I didn't like Hexen quite as much. I do think it's fun, and I did put it above Doom 64 and Duke Nukem 64, which are the other kind of comparable shooters of this system. Uh, so I put it at number 118, which is right above Cruisin' World. Uh, respectable, like, kind of middle-of-the-pack position. Uh, not a bad game, Hexen. I would I would say, you know, if, if you... Uh, have a hankering for a Doom clone, you could definitely do worse. I just, I don't know. There was something about Hexen I really just enjoyed punching stained glass windows. That was fun. That was very satisfying. <laughs> and Daikatana is hot, sweaty garbage. Oh my god. It is absolutely terrible. Still not quite the worst that we've seen on the system, but pretty goddamn close. I am putting it at number 222. Uh, so I guess we're over 220. I forget exactly how much, but it's right above, uh, right above Transformers, Beast Wars, Transmetals, Ooh, and right below that's, the that's Powerpuff real close Girls. To the bottom. So and you you stuck with it longer than I did, so I feel like you're a, you're a more reliable source on it's it. It's real garbage, guys. Everyone, trust me on this. Do not play Daikatana. It is fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> we do have a couple of letters here today. Uh, one of them is quite long, but I think the lo- the length of it actually really helps illustrate the point. So uh, I, I I chose to keep the entire thing here. But it's from um, Jay Romero. <laughs> we'll start with a short one here. 
Uh, hey guys, just wanted to say that I love the podcast and have been binging it while I'm in quarantine. I'm out in Washington, D.C., and things are expected to get pretty bad with coronavirus real soon here in the district. But listening to you guys banter have genuinely helped pass the time, especially while going on brief jogs outside and smoking some of the good stuff. It's legal here. I'm 26, so N64 was my first actual console, and it has a special place deep down. Love hearing about all the games I missed out on and those I played a long time ago and haven't thought about since. Great content, much appreciated in these trying times, and that is from Dan in District of Columbia. Thank you, Dan. Hope you're doing well. Hope uh, hope it hasn't been as bad as it was projected when this letter was sent. But um, yeah, we, uh, I feel we like we found our new uh, our new cell for the podcast, Steve. It uh, Ultra sixty four. It helps pass the time. We pass the time <laughs> exactly. I love it. All right. We yeah, have... I think it's a more more appealing cell than uh, suck it down. <laughs> <laughs> suck down this passage of time. Um, all right, so there's a, kind of a bit of a longer letter here, but this relates directly to Jet Force Gemini. Uh, I think this kind of helps illustrate a lot of what we were talking about the game as well. So, hi, Steve Woody and guests. Not this time, but, you know, hope springs eternal. Uh, I'm a long-time listener, first time writing in. I've been waiting for your Jet Force Gemini episode for so long. I'm not sure why it's hard for you to rank this game, because it sounds like you largely got to skip out on the most controversial part. I figured you wouldn't have had the time to really dive into the tribal collecting thing, but it unfortunately becomes a major component of the game later on. And as one of only a handful of people stupid enough to beat Jet Force Gemini, I thought I'd share the details about how this section completely ruins an otherwise decent game. So at around halfway point of the game, Mizar, the main villain, escapes to a distant asteroid which is unfortunately out of your reach. The only way to follow him is in a special spacecraft, but the spacecraft must first be connected by rescuing, constructed by rescuing every single tribal in the game, plus quote, collecting 12 ship parts. Uh, I heard you guys throw up the number 100 for a possible number of tribals. If only. There are oh, about no. a dozen locations in the game. Each location in the game has about one to four regions, and each region has about six to 15 tribals. So the total number of tribals rounds out to almost 300. So imagine playing Arkham City and having to collect every Riddler trophy without the map just to be able to face the final boss. That's about the scope of the tedium here. It would be one thing if the problem was just to find all the guys, but there are also all of the cruel and frustrating constraints that come in addition to an already Herculean task. You must collect every tribal in a region in a single run. You can't save one or two this time and then get the rest next time because when you enter a region, all tribals reappear and your menu counter resets at zero. You have to record a score of 100% tribals saved at the end of the region, so you either commit to saving all of them in one go, or you may as well ignore them. Doing this is only possible in some cases with one specific character, with one specific ability or acquired item, which makes it possible for only them to access all tribals in that region. How you even? It's not going to tell you that. No, it says how you even <laughs> figure out who or what you need to bring for success. I guess is contingent on trial and error and a keen sense of observation. This means you may have been predestined for failure at the outset of a region simply because you picked the wrong character and didn't even realize it until you got to be a part where you couldn't do. Many of the levels, as you noted, are sprawling and maze-like, and sometimes it's just difficult to find the, your, the region you need to liberate when you have to traipse through one to four other regions melting into one another, some of which are transitional areas and have no tribals at all. It's also, think, it's also easy, if you're not paying attention, to walk through any number of region doors which immediately exit you from the region and end your run prematurely if you haven't oh saved everyone. God. So tribals can be found anywhere from standing out in the open amidst the crossfire to locked in prison cells hiding behind some ridiculously cryptic locale that realistically you're only going to find digging through the code of the game. 
And as you noted, they also die very easily. It takes All it takes is one unlucky shot from anyone in any given wild shootout where they happen to be standing nearby. If that's not hard enough, then they are actually assassin enemies that seek out to kill the tribals. <laughs> you must locate and kill them immediately before they succeed in your mission, or you know what happens. Even the basic task of tracking your current progress in a region on the pause menu is more difficult than it needs to be, because the tribals are ta tallied with a weird emoticons. Happy for rescued, sad for not rescued, and red X over the face for dead. Sad for not sad rescued. Sad for not rescued. Like that. Obviously That was that was John McCain when they when they came and rescued him, he was sad, and then they rescued him, he became happy. Yeah, his face changed. Uh, obviously, that one needs to read zero at all times, or you've failed and need to start over. It's also possible to kill a tribal in a chaotic fight without noticing until you check your list sometime later. The bottom line of what makes this section of the game so, so awful is that you can invest so much time and effort into any given tribal run and have it get torpedoed at any moment in any of a dozen different ways, and then you have to restart with nothing to show for it except whatever you learned from your failure. And before you know it, you've collectively racked up hours of emptiness, sound and fury signifying nothing. This isn't just tedious, this isn't just not fun, this design choice shows a profound animosity toward the player. Most would stop here, and those who see it through won't enjoy it. What were they thinking? If anything, this is an optional thing you do if you want a platinum trophy or achievement, not an all-encompassing mandatory game mechanic. Uh, I want to like Jet Force Gemini, but it's so difficult for me to say I like the game when I have zero desire to play it to completion a second time. I don't know that I would say I like a book or a movie where I like the first part, but always stop and put it away at the end of the second act. That's why I have trouble ranking this game too. Sorry for the incredibly long letter, and thanks for all the good times. And that is from Dan. Whew, okay. Whew. That no, was thanks, a long no, one. No, you're right. I'm glad you did not cut any of that letter, because that's something I have wondered about. That's a, that's a great letter. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank Dan. you very much, Dan. I have wondered about that for a long time, because I was one of the people who I played Jet Force Gemini, and I got to the part where he's like, you got to collect all the tribals. And I was like, uh, I'm going to stop playing this game. Yeah. And I've always wondered about that. I'm like, was I just a wimp? And like, you know, no. I, I could have solved it easily. It, this, so it's nice to get this verification that no, this is insane. That is that is staggering. That is staggering that this game would require you to do all that, like, just to beat the game. That's that's absolutely mind-blowing and such bad design. Uh, so I, I, I feel a little better about being kind of hard on that game when we talked about it because, like, and again, it's in a weird place where it's like I, I do feel a little bit of affection for the game. It's it's got some fun ideas and some fun shooting and running around and stuff like that. But goddamn, that is just broken. That is just unforgivingly terrible. Uh, it, it's it's crazy that Rare would would let that be in their game, and it really it really makes you mad at Rare as a company. It Rare, does. I feel like we've sort of lost some goodwill towards. Them. I feel like that's beyond anything that they ever did in Donkey Kong sixty four. Oh, that yeah. that might make so it like much. the rarest rare game of all time. Uh, so thank you, Dan, for clarifying that, and thank you I for feel your like service. We need to start a new uh, a new Buzzfeed list. Wait, was Dan in the military? No, he, and was, getting he, was, he was in Jet Force Gemini. Oh, okay. he, he saved yeah, all he, the, he saved all the tribals. We, yeah, we rescued him, and he became a smiley face. Um, I feel like we need to start a BuzzFeed list. Listeners, submit your list of games that have been ruined, like good games that have been ruined by one baffling design choice. Yes, yeah. Because I'm curious about that, and I feel like Jet Force Gemini might be number one on that list. I think that would be way, way the hell up there. I can't imagine it getting much worse than that. We might find out next week, though. But firstly, I want to thank everyone for listening. We had a bit of a supersized episode because there was just so much ground to cover with these terrible, terrible games. Well, one terrible oh, game, I, one good game. Yeah, all good. Can I make a request for uh, 
shuffling shuffling our schedule around a little bit, Steve? Sure, yeah. What do you want to do? Uh, can we play Tigger's Honey Hunt? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I am fine playing Tigger's Honey Hunt as our next game. Uh, I figure there's not going to be, like, super in-depth multiplayer content we're missing out on. Oh, well, what right? about the part where you have to collect all the poos? Like, there's 300 Ooh, yeah. poos, and they're spread across That's 12 different levels. That's what it should be called, levels. is, like, Tigger's Poo Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably need to uh, tone that down for a couple of reasons. All right, yeah, so turn, tune in next week when we will be playing Tigger's Honey Hunt. In the meantime, you can find us at Ultra64 Podcast on all the different social media things. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash ultra64pod. And when you were listening to this, our other podcast, Just Friends, I think we would have just released our, uh, not final episode, but we finished the book. So for those of you who have uh, been listening along, Jest Friends is a podcast where we are going through and reading all of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, 50 or so pages at a time. Famously difficult, tedious read, and we are almost there. Woody's done. I'm not quite done yet, but uh, we're going to be wrapping that up. The the question, then stay tuned for our next podcast of would you rather play through Jet Force Gemini or read Infinite Jest again? Oh, God. Oh, oh, It's called Jest Force Gemini. I want to play. I want that podcast now. <laughs> That's just like brutal. Like we're trying to reread the book and replay all of that game at the same time. Oh my God. Well, yeah. So tune in for that. Just friends uh, to everywhere you get your podcasts and tune in next week for Tigger's Honey Hunt. Uh, and uh, I'm excited for Tigger to make me his bitch personally. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be great. Tigger's Honey Hunt. Suck it down. <laughs> Bye everybody. Bye.